Welcome to Documental. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburne, in Washington. This episode is the final of three in a series examining psychedelics and democracy. We started with Dr. Scott Aronson, who's heading up research into the best model for scaling up psychedelic use for depression. Our second guest was Brian Murarescu, author of The Immortality Key. He talked to us about the apparent use of psychedelics in Paleo-Christian times and the implications of that for today. But this time I'm speaking with Adam Ellenbos, also known as Achuta Bhavadas. He trained in the ayahuasca shaman tradition, participating in more than 100 psychedelic ceremonies, and he now practices bhakti yoga and produces a series of spiritual videos on YouTube. Achuta talks about what it's like to use psychedelics and how doing so helped move him from a destructive state of despair to living a life filled with hope and joy. It's another great conversation about democracy, our minds, and our faith in ourselves and the future. And I am so pleased to bring it to you. Achuta Baba Das, it is such a pleasure to have you on Documental, Mapping the American States of Mind. Um, we're going to talk about your work with ayahuasca. And um, I guess I'm going to start by asking, first of all, what does your name mean? It wasn't the name you were given at birth. So how did you end up with the name Achuta Baba Das? Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, and it's a good topic. I'm glad to see that people are interested in, in talking about ayahuasca and mental health and things like that. So um, I'm excited to be here for that. Um, my name means, um, Achuta is one of the names for Krishna in the Bhakti Yoga tradition. And so uh, Achuta Bhava means the uh, love of Krishna and mm. um, and Das means servant. So it's, uh, it's a way of saying that um, we, we kind of, although I love the name I was given, you know, but uh, we, we let go of our um, worldly name and take up a, a name that means the servant of Krishna. So if you hear like Ram Das, you know, it's a servant of Ram. Um, you might hear like other famous teachers, uh, Krishna Das, you know, it's mm -hmm. a, another one. So that's, that's kind of what that means. And I, I took it up as um, part of initiation into the Bhakti Yoga uh, tradition, which I'd been studying for a long time. And so what is your given name? Adam Ellenboss? Yeah, Adam Ellenboss, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I bring that up because you have written a book, uh, Fishers of Men. Wait a minute. I want to make sure I, well, why don't you, it's Fishers of Men and then it's the gospel. What's the full title? Yeah. So it's called the uh, Fishers of Men, the gospel of an ayahuasca vision quest. And when I published it, I had not yet taken initiation. So my given name, you, you'd look it up by my given name, which is Adam Ellenboss. I'm going to include a link to it, but just in case anyone okay. was looking for it. So um, the book gives us um, a great encapsulation of, I think, you before the journey that you've actually been on as a, as a chuta. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't want to spend too much time talking about what actually happens in the book, other than maybe to ask you to encapsulate that you were you were in a, a spiraling, uh, dist a destructive depression, and um, using the psychedelic, the psychedelic brew ayahuasca helped you to end the pain that you were in and really opened you up to a whole new life. So, um, as much as you think is necessary for the conversation that we are going to have, which is about the um, the way that ayahuasca and psychedelics in general can help us with these mental health questions and, and other societal questions. The gist of it is that in my early twenties, I was, I had grown up in the Christian church. I was, a, you know, a preacher's, was a preacher's kid. And, um, my father had a kind of like a, a nervous breakdown, I would call it. And, um, during that time, 
um, as he was kind of falling away from his faith and from the Christian fold that I had been brought up in, you know, I was, I was, I kind of went through a parallel crisis of faith, I guess you could call it. And during that time got, um, addicted to opiates. Um, and during that period of time, I was also just doing a lot of exploring and experimenting. Um, I was a seeker as well as being sort of self-destructive and a little bit lost. And, um, during that time, accidentally, uh, just trying to have fun, used um, some psychedelic substances recreationally. And those substances um, really drew a clear distinction for me between um, the life that I was living, which was quite self-destructive, and what a spiritual path might look like. And that was not what I was expecting when someone gave me, you know, some mushrooms, some psychedelic mushrooms at a party. I was expecting to have fun and get high. And instead it it became um, an introspective ordeal. And that basically set the, the, a a chain of events came from that experience that I started researching psychedelics and their role basically in human history. Um, Where did LSD come from? Why was it so integral to the 1960s? Um, And, um, also along that path found out that there were indigenous people from all over the world who used similar plant medicines as a form of, of um, uh, therapy, healing, medicine, however we want to, whatever we want to call it. And so um, knowing in particular that ayahuasca from South Central America was um, available, that there were different places that you could go in South America and um, participate with, um, you know, traditional lineages of curanderos or ayahuasqueros, people who utilize these substances in a, in a meaningful context, and that you could do that, and that people were using it, in fact, to help heal from substance abuse and addiction, and uh, it was helping people find their way. And uh, so I became really enamored by the idea of going, thanks in large part to a friend of mine who was also interested. And so we went down and it began about a 10-year period in my life where I worked with ayahuasca in what I would call a, a very healing and therapeutic context. Um, and, uh, and it was through that, of course, th- th- that context that I became clean, uh, sober, um, have been since, uh, and also found things like yoga. Uh, my wife and I ended up, uh, we had a yoga studio for about 10 years in D.C., so all of my life, really, the things that I do now, including, you know, bhakti yoga, came from those, the inspiration of those experiences, the healing effect that those experiences had on me. So, and, and so I wrote a book about it, and, and the, the journey uh, of the book also describes the parallel of um, healing encounters that um, my father had. He ended up going to the Amazon, and my sister ended up going um, and uh, there was some pretty deep generational healing that happened between my grandfather, my father, and myself. So it was a lot of um, those what were very painful events in my life that became in- incredibly meaningful and, and very healing because of these, you know, ayahuasca adventures. So that's kind of what the book is about. What is the reason why um, psychedelics impacted your uh, your psych? psyche differently than manufactured drugs 
Yeah, and maybe the distinction, <clears throat> maybe the most meaningful distinction isn't so much between, you know, sort of synthetic versus organic or anything. I mean, maybe it is, but there are some, there are very helpful therapeutic um, drugs that are synthetic, like they're, they're using, you know, MDMA for post-traumatic stress. And so there, I'm, I don't mean to um, be puritanical about anything, but I, um, what I would say the difference between say alcohol, nicotine, um, opiates, the uh, kind of the uppers and downers that I was playing with was that those really um, physiologically just were like mood adjusters. They were no. like tr trying to, I just felt like they were helping me to cope with depression or angst or anxiety or, you know, different states. And they were kind of, it's kind of like just trying to modulate myself and get some relief. And that's what they felt like they were doing for me. But of course they had, a, they were, they were addicting, you know, so, um, and, uh, and had a lot of really, um, bad side effects. And, um, when I took mushrooms, uh, you know, again, it was not with the intention of having any kind of therapeutic experience. It was just for fun at a party. And I ended up, um, this is kind of a funny story. I ended up, so I ended up in my locking myself in my bedroom at, at, I was having a big party at my apartment and um, I ended up locking myself in my bedroom because I was getting really overwhelmed by the, by the mental and emotional experience of being on the mushrooms. And um, in my closet, I was like looking at my clothing and I, and I was realizing how much of my clothing, my choices of clothing were rooted in these really deep insecurities. And I was looking at my cologne on my um my dresser and i was noticing that my cologne choices were rooted in anger toward my father so it was a kind of experience where it was very mind opening and mind expanding and it was it was getting me into some of the unconscious dynamics of my choices and my behavior and it was profound to me that a substance could could do that because it brought me to tears it was emotionally relieving to understand why I was making choices that I was making, that there was unprocessed hurt and, uh, you know, things like that. And, um, and then on, in addition to that, it was visionary. Um, so there's a dimension to it that's very imaginative and um, uh, colorful and um, not, not necessarily joyful, sometimes scary, sometimes joyful, but it, it felt like a, a journey of, of mind and heart. Yeah, it wasn't um, an easy experience, um, but it was a good experience. And that was distinguished from any other substance I had done at that point, because those experiences were basically about feeling good. Mm. This, was, um, this was a kind of, it felt like a, more of a, a, um, an adventure of mind and heart. And mm. it, it was, it was, it deeply changed my perception. It changed my thinking and it taught me things about myself and it inspired me um, in terms of what, what kind of universe do I live in? Um, because the other dimension of the experiences, of course, um, which is well-documented is that there's, there's a sense of being in, in touch with something, um, con you know, um, you know, people will maybe give it different names, but the, the feeling that something spiritual was happening. Um, and 
so it's it just really really spoke to me and and then i had the sense during the experience that these substances um even in the the visions that you you know many people will will report on having these i was having them as well but the visionary space of the mushroom um journey that night was also very clearly <clears throat> indigenous like i was seeing images of tribal indigenous people doing ceremonies and um, drums and iconography from that, that was foreign to me and all sorts of like visionary tapestries that made me realize that, gosh, these, um, this is something else. Like this is not, this Mm. is not the same. um, This is not the same as getting high to to feel good or something like that. So it was, um, it really inspired me to want to know more about where these came from and, um, and, and what, what their purpose was and what kind of reality they pointed to as well, because it was very instantly was as though um, my perception of reality itself and and the cosmos and the human spirit and so many things changed um, very rapidly within, you know, five hours of taking the mushrooms for the, that was my first psychedelic experience. So it sounds like what you're describing and I'll just state for the, the record, but also for the purposes of understanding that my questions to you are are naive. I am not a person who's ever used a psychedelic. So it sounds like what you were tapping into um, was a sort of collective unconscious, because if you were experiencing visions of ceremonies and, I guess you said, indigenous types of activity, but you had never participated in any of those sorts of activities before, I'm really fascinated to think kind of like Jung with the archetypes or Plato with the archetypes that there are, there's the possibility of tapping into something that is universal in the human experience. And it sounds like that's what you're, you're saying, but it also though, I wonder, does everyone have that experience? Um, I think that it is um, extremely common for people who have um, any, you know, there are, there are going to be, like recreational psychedelic experiences that for many people, um, you know, like, let's just say, let's just say garden variety pot smoking, which can be used medicinally and can have a very healing and therapeutic sort of psychedelic effect. But for many people, um, you know, they're, they're the, the more the, the deeper and more interesting mental or intellectual or spiritual dimensions of the experience will be brushed aside because of the setting. You know, if you're if you're at a party and you're you know, you're it just depends. Everyone's wired a little differently, and so I do think it's possible for people to have psychedelic experiences and sort of brush them off as just a crazy high. It was, it was really crazy, you know. People just be like that, um, but that that doesn't mean that they weren't tapping into things. It probably just means that they were brushing them aside or they were uncomfortable with them, um, but. Yeah, I think that it's, you know, in, t- in 10 years of being really immersed in the psychedelic communities across the United States and in Europe, especially, um, that what I saw is that, you know, it's ex- extremely common for people to um, feel as though they are tapping into the archetypal mythic dimensions of the mind and psyche and biology and things like that. I'd like to get to how we deal with that from a policy perspective in a minute, but I, you know, eventually here, but what I wanted to, first of all, um, 
get an idea for the audience is the actual experience physically. So you have these, you have things going on mentally, visually, um, and they feel real. And I guess you would say that they are real. But when I read your book, I was, I was actually terrified for you. And I thought for myself, my goodness, this would just be, I don't think I could my, my take on it was, I don't know if I can handle it, the purging and the and just like this constant, the, <laughs> yeah, I mean, could you explain a little bit? And then also maybe talk about it metaphorically too, why purging is so essential to using ayahuasca? Um, ayahuasca is a, a purgative. So it's when you drink ayahuasca, and not all psychedelics are, are purgatives, but um, this plant medicine is a purgative, which means that um, when people take it, the part of the fabric of the visionary experience or the ceremonial experience will often be um, the release of um, emotions and of physical substance and what I would also call mental or spiritual um, traumas. They, 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 they come out. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to explain, but they um they come out through you know you people will vomit people will scream people will laugh people will cry um people will just re release deluges of of pent-up stuff that they'll just start saying it's it's profoundly truthful often and not like just not just crazy gibberish in other words but like they'll just start pouring out things that they think and feel and say and and believe and it's really deep and profound stuff like i've seen people crack open and this deep wells of nihilism or cynicism or bitterness or whatever will just, they'll just start expressing it freely and then they might start laughing and then they might start crying under the weight of all of it. And these are really, really deep, profound um, psychological breakthroughs that people often have as a result of this. And sometimes it will go, though people will go at the bottom. Um, so, and those, those experiences are different for everyone. Sometimes people purge very intensely. Sometimes people don't purge at all. It's um, it's really, really different because some, I mean, sometimes the experience will be very gentle and um, like you're being carried or held. Sometimes some experiences will be like that, and other times there's going to be more of a, um, the the feeling of of really needing to release things that are pent up. And I can tell you that it's not just chaotic, random physiological effects. Like, I don't know, um, very few people, you know, and hundreds and hundreds of people that I've been in ceremonies with that I've seen, um, you know, not reporting on the experience as pro profoundly life-changing in a positive way, uh, that the depths of what you're able to see and understand about yourself, about your life, about your history, about your well-being, about the way you think, about the way you perceive, um, those kinds of choices are reflected back to you in this um, profound mental and psychological mirror and and the the re response physiologically to that is to is so honest like your the way your body responds is not just like a, a side effect it, it it it's as though your body is responding to a, a level of truth that your conscious mind is just not ever aware of and as a result of that most people that go through the experiences feel this overwhelming need to cultivate some kind of practice in their life to stay in touch with that 
um, unconscious dimension, therapy, yoga, mindfulness. I don't know very many people at all, in fact, who drink ayahuasca for the first time and don't walk away saying, I need something in my life to continue to, to, you know, to cultivate an interior life beyond the experience. The experience imparts the need for that very deeply. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it uh, emphasizes any study into the somatization of our emotions. Um, yeah, because I also know from my own experience doing yoga and other um, forms of body work for, for years now that um, out of the blue, you can just start to have these emotional responses to a pose. You know, you just start bawling and mm-hmm. or you get really angry or yeah. Uh, so that's really interesting. But the purging um, was off-putting when I read about it. Now, yours is not the yeah. only experience that I've, I've read about. So um, just one last question about that then is, 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 do you think, as you pointed out, not all of the psychedelics available for, um, for spiritual use are purgative? Do you think that there is maybe one advantage to purgatives versus one that's not? There's different uses for psychedelics, you know, around the world. And it's important to understand how, uh, you know, different shamans, for lack of a better word, shaman isn't really the, the right word in, in many ways. But um, broadly speaking, the, 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 the practitioners of these medicinal plants from around the world use them for different reasons and different intentions, and they they have different effects. So we should really begin by in my opinion, by understanding how practitioners have traditionally understood the medicines, how they've used them, how they believe relationships to them should be cultivated. That's really, really important because if we skip past that, um, we're going to colonialize these medicines, essentially. We'll we'll just try to strip them of their um, psychological and mythical spiritual context. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, that's my one fear is not that they, not that we don't understand them scientifically, chemically, biochemically, or that we don't find meaningful ways of implementing them within our modern, you know, clinical context. I'm really open to all of that. In fact, some of the people that I've worked with very closely have been part of, you know, research projects um, looking at the administration of mushrooms and palliative care situations. Like, I, so I'm really open to that stuff. But the people that I've worked with in those settings like a lot of the people who worked on the Johns Hopkins project with mushrooms, the NYU project with mushrooms, these people also really understand and respect the indigenous context and use. And they, they study that as much as they just try to run off and, and strip it of, of, you know, it's get, get down to its chemical roots and just utilize it. Um, Let, I think, you, can I interrupt you there? Because yeah. I've actually just been writing about this and it'll be part of the series that you're, that this interview is 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 included in, um, so I just want to be clear. I understand you are saying that the investigators at the Johns Hopkins and the NYU sites, um, that the investigators, the scientists themselves, understand the larger context. I want to be clear on that because there is now. I just read an. I just read the accompanying editorial to the recent studies that were published in New England Journal, and there is this push now to separate the spiritual from the the. Um, the biological impact, the mechanism of action, so that we know how they operate separately and if it's possible to use the drugs without the spiritual component. 
Yeah, I mean, I met people who were a part of both projects who had that sensibility. So I can't say I know everyone that was involved or how everyone, you know, and I, but I, my impression in meeting people who were involved with both projects was that there was care and concern for the indigenous context and, and the spiritual psychological dimensions of the experience as they had been practiced, you know? And so I think just that, that gave me a lot of hope. I think it's a huge mistake to try to separate the two. Uh, I don't, in fact, I don't think that they, they can be. And I think that um, researchers who don't have the initiation within an indigenous context, which is just to say a traditional context of their use um, are playing with something that they don't understand. And um, they, there will be repercussions for that. And it will, I think it'll be quite damning. You, you were talking about um, shamans and you said for, you know, for, you refer to shamans often in your book. And um, one of the things you state was um, a good shaman also hopes we might heal each other. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, what is a good shaman? And, and then you also talk about how anyone can be a shaman and, and, you know, First, I'll say I agree with you. I think that the point of healing our mental distress is so that we can make democracy and freedom real globally. Peace, you know, it's all equated with peace. And we have to do this by helping one another. So when we heal, I believe it is incumbent upon us to turn and help others heal. So that's my mm -hmm. philosophy. Um, I don't think everyone is open to being healed or helping others heal. So when you say every, anyone can be a, a shaman, I think that needs unpacking because maybe when I say somebody's not willing to be helped or to help, maybe not now, maybe later, maybe never, I don't know. But do we all have the potential to be shamans? I don't know if I have the answer to that. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mystification of, um, of, of, you know, there's kind of a new age mystification of some of the words like shaman and psychedelic and, you know, medicine man and all of this kind of stuff. And when I was in the Amazon and worked with uh, in both in a lot of, actually a lot of different contexts and working with people who had, you know, indigenous people who had um, lineages and training what I understood from the people that I worked with was that the inherent ability to heal ourselves and to heal others is, is actually a part of the definition of health, that, that being healthy, um, that, that this, that these, in other words, that the medicine and the shamans that I worked with were nudging me into being someone who could take care of myself and, and, bring out healing knowledge and information that's within me. It's instinctual. Um, that's um, a part of my makeup as a being. And that this idea was really profound to me because at the time, you know, I had grown up in the church where, you know, th there, there, there are, you know, ministers, preachers, and in the Christian tradition, broadly speaking, there's certain people that have a a status as maybe being closer to God or of having more insight or power to heal or something like that. And so this kind of, yeah, this had sort of, this, this, these experiences had sort of instilled within me the idea that, um, you know, when we're well, um, each of us have the same knowledge that, um, 
that that a, a shaman or a healer might have almost just trying to uh, demystify and take off from the elevated platform you know the, the, these these figures just just make the humanize this experience and um also this idea that to be well is also that your your presence as someone who's taking care of themselves and being healthy has an impact on the sphere of your influence around you that you can bring health to other people and that you don't need um you know because at the time what i was i was also inundated by the new age scene um and everyone really wanting to be a shaman, wanting to be a Reiki healer, wanting to be a, a yoga teacher, like kind of wanting to be this, um, have a special title or something like that. And the people that I had worked with in the Amazon were very humble. And the idea that was most profound is that like, look, when you get well, you don't have to try to do or be anything. You'll be, you'll have that healing knowledge within yourself and you'll have a healing impact on others. So that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Not, not so much like, I mean, there's specialized training that's needed to be an administer of ayahuasca in the Amazon. And I wasn't trying to say that anyone can do that or be that. Not everyone's called to do that. And there's incredible training that goes into something like that. But just the idea that we can heal ourselves and we can heal each other without needing to have a lot of ego around it. Well, that thank you for that really clear definition then um, or explanation. It brings me back to this question that you pointed to a minute ago where you were saying that separating or I love the word colonizing it because that implies this hierarchy being imposed upon the power of this healing um, substance. I'm wondering if we were to go ahead and, and let science and policy because it's not just science. Science in and of itself is is neutral. It's it's what we should be doing. It's asking questions. It's it's delivering quality information. But how policy might use what science discovers to separate God from healing or the all. I mean, I don't want to. Some people react negatively <clears throat> to God, but this this um, uncon this collective power separating that from the biological power. And I'm wondering, and you had said you thought that would be a mistake. And so I'm wondering if that then um, interferes with, let's say that uh, a person is in a study, they are given the compounds without that have been isolated without uh, being then exposed to a mystical experience, but their depression lessens. Do you then think that they would have access to that healing that the shamans you worked with are talking about where you know they then can turn around and be a health presence or i don't know is there a way not to know what would be the danger of the separate separate separating things the way you talked about i'm really open to being wrong about things um ayahuasca taught me that it's actually it can be profoundly um interesting and enlightening to be wrong about things so i um i'm open to being you know, just wrong about stuff. But the, um, I think one thing that I would say first about like science is that uh, one thing that, uh, you know, I, I had a long series of ceremonies that um, were very useful to me because I, a number of my friends at that point in my life were um, like secular, like empiricists. I would, that's how I would describe it. And, um, and atheists and um, not like, like, like trying to, <clears throat> trying to 
interpret my experiences through their own lens and having to watch my friends like go through that because obviously my social life changed quite a bit when I had these experiences and started writing about them and everything. And um, I was at a number of ceremonies where, you know, I had been given the line that like, like science is, is neutral. And my experience in ceremonies was that um, neutrality is still um, neutral. Neutrality is still a proactive stance. It's still an assertion. Hmm. Um, you can't, there's not, there's, um, everyone's got skin in the game. Existence is skin in the game. And so if, if we are asserting a paradigm, a way of processing information, a way of looking at or trying to understand experience, um, and we're asserting that, even if the way of dealing with information has um, has a sense of neutrality to it. The entire use of it and asserting the use of something that has this neutral way of processing information is still uh, the assertion of a paradigm. And that paradigm has ramifications. Everything does. <clears throat> it creates things. It's not, um, its effects are not neutral and that you can't be neutral um, because everything's alive. So neutrality is um, a kind of, an archetype itself that we live through. And it's a, it, there's, there's gods or powers psychically that live in the assertion of neutrality. And so I'm very cautious about the idea that neutrality is b like benign. Um, I'm not saying it's malignant either, but I, I don't think it's benign. Um, I think it, you know, it can be useful. It can be harmful. It really depends on why people are using a platform of neutrality in, in science. Um, it almost never results in the information being gained, being used in a neutral way. Um, that is such an incredibly clear description of the potential destruction that we can create using the scientific method, which I believe in and I use, but wow, I, the interview was worth that alone. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Yeah, and that, that 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 I can't claim that insight is mine. Like that insight came through ayahuasca. Well, like I said, while trying to understand um, this this dynamic with some of my scientist friends that I was experiencing while sharing my life and my experiences with my scientist friends, and just realizing that we like we like I said, we all have skin in the game, and so even you know how there's always an intention behind what we're what we're using and why we're using and then whatever information we get even if the filtering is neutral still has intentionality behind it so and that's why i think the the observation that you made where policy comes in is so astute because obviously what we do with what information is gathered but the idea that information could that, that you could that you could separate that you could strip or separate things into parts analyze them and break them apart neutrally um, is it itself an activity of some kind and it creates things. And I, I'm, I like science too. Like, you know, and my mom, my mom, my mom's a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So we talk a lot about science and the brain and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm not an anti-science person and I don't think ayahuasca engenders anti-science in people either or psychedelics in general. Um, in fact, some of the most interesting scientific people that I know have been really impacted by psychedelic experiences. But um, I guess that's my point is to just um, 
just point out that we're all that there's there's uh, we're creators, and that 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 science is still very active and and proactive creatively in in the universe. And um, I the second thing I would say is that um, I think that um, you know that the, there's need for there's need for recreation of myth and metaphor and ceremony and praxis um, in new ages and new eras. So I don't believe that, I'm not trying to say that the only way that a person could get healing out of ayahuasca or something like it is purely within the context of some traditional lineage, otherwise it's just dead. Um, no, but I believe that novel forms are, are they appear based on a, um, a meaningful, elaboration from something that that came before like jazz as to classical music or rock and roll as to so there's a there's a, a playfulness in how something evolves and and changes and i think nature demonstrates that too that there's play there's art and, and novelty and the idea that you could isolate or strip away in order to you know something here that you haven't fully immersed yourself in or understood and then create some meaningful um, new um, structure or experience uh, stripped of the thing that you haven't understood. Well, how could you even know what you were separating? You know, how could you how could you assume to know what what needed separating or what didn't? Or so I'm really skeptical of the idea that you could make meaningful advances in the uses of these medicines without. Um, both studying them scientifically and understanding their cultural and psychological context. I, I just can't tell you how excited I am by this insight that you've shared with us because um, you, the way I've been focusing on health policy this year with Documental, I mean, my background is as a health policy reporter and a, a psychiatric journal editor and, you know, mostly just hardcore, middle of the road, this is how we do healthcare, et cetera. But what I, I came to understand was is that healthcare is an industry. And I mean, that seems like an obvious statement, but when you're within it, you can forget that healthcare is an industry. Medicine is its own separate thing. And medicine existed long before healthcare came along and put itself around medicine and then boxed it off. So my focus this year has been what has the status quo of industry and policy made us forget about medicine and what you've just opened up for me is not only what we've forgotten, but stopped us from understanding how to proceed with what we don't even know. And I like the idea that, you know, we can, we can conduct experiments as though they are jazz, you know, mm -hmm. you, you just, you get the, you get the chord structure and then you voice it differently and you may not go in a, you may not say things you knew you could say yeah. just like yeah. As musician might voice a chord totally differently than he's ever or she's ever done before. So this is very exciting. And um, I wonder, do you think that you would have these insights had you not done ayahuasca? No, no, because I mean, you know, experience with ayahuasca over a decade and having so many different contexts in and through which to consider the experience, being someone who loves science who loves i love i like i'm interested in physics i'm interested in the universe i'm interested in how we got here i'm interested in god i'm interested you know and i don't i find that the more tensions <clears throat> and contradictions that you can hold simultaneously um make for an interesting life and 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 i think that um 
the thing that, yeah, again, the thing that I, my wife is an herbalist. So, um, an herbalist who also, you know, understands the, um, the chemistry of herbal medicine. And I think that that's where things need to, like, we need to move in that direction where we're not trying to, um, strip the, 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 you know, the, the, the context, like, for example, um, I think there's something to be said in herbalism. Many herbalists will tell you this, that, um, understanding what herbs grow in your backyard and understanding yeah. the herbs, you know, in the natural landscape around you and then understanding their, uh, their chemistry and understanding their folklore and uh, like all of those components. When you have that, it, it, you have that kind of relationship to the medicine. Um, at the very least it, it, it brings in a psychological and emotional and a human dimension that seems to make the medicines more viable it just, they, they seem to work better. And um, of course, herbalists talk about this all the time. And so my point is that it's that human context. It's the storytelling. It's the myth. It's the metaphor. It's the colors. It's the ceremony. It's the sensual dimension of medicine in its human context that if we bring that along, plus keep studying it really intelligently, that's where I think the novelty can can come from. But yet you're right to say that that's, um, that's a totally... Um, you, you know, to have that, to do that, but, um, to also deal with the, um, the hugeness of the pharmaceutical industry or the healthcare industry or, or policy and stuff like that is like, that's super, to me, that's really intimidating. It is intimidating. And I don't really have an answer for how to go about it because what you've just delineated is, is to have a, a humility and talk about changing the paradigm what you've also just described is allowing the plants to to teach as though they have a a fate of their own or an intention of their own to engage mm -hmm. with them as though you are in relationship not oh i have this compound and i want to manipulate it and i want to use it instead it's i want to engage with and i want to learn from and i want to partner with I mean, that's just Loopyville when you start talking to scientists, but that also is the natural indigenous way of the peoples of this continent. And, you know, I've been wondering, I actually did a, a program about a month ago where I looked toward Western music being uh, combined with indigenous music in the Lakota nation. And my actual agenda was to show that these two ways of knowing existence they're, they, they're not in parallel and separate, they can be brought together. Because I, I am not saying that our way of doing things in the West is wrong, or in the West, I mean industrial nations. But there is something fundamentally flawed about hierarchy. And I'm even wondering if hierarchy is necessary. And that seems like a really radical question, but I think it's a really important question because what you just described cannot be done effectively in a hierarchical paradigm. That's a huge conversation. And I have like so many thoughts about that, especially over the last few years, as it's become much more, um, it's much more conversation, not a, not a edgy conversation that's on the margins anymore to talk about hierarchy. Like it's like front and center now in, in the mainstream. The thing that ayahuasca showed me, if I had to sum it up, was that reality is relational. Just all of reality is relational. Um, and that there's there's sentience, there's consciousness, and there's and that the life is made up um, not just of mechanistic laws, but of meaningful relationships. 
And we can understand those meaningful relationships through the language or paradigm of laws, which is really useful. It's one way of describing relationships that's totally valid. But if we impress upon reality only the objective, neutral way of understanding relationships, by its very nature, we'll strip the subjective or the interior or the emotional, um, those dimensions. And I, I don't think that you can do that because they persist, they're pervasive and they're, they're not going away and you can't, you can't separate them. Um, so try as we might to filter everything and understand everything neutrally to act neutrally is to still take a relational stance. It's still a kind of stance, just like if you're in a room with someone and they're, they're talking to you or approaching you with um, a decisively neutral um, relationship stance, you'll feel it and experience that it has ramifications on the relationship. So I think that you have to kind of dance with, okay, there's, there's, there's a season for everything. There's times and there's contexts in which to approach and relate to things through the lens of neutrality and objectivity. And then there's times where you're not going to get the most intelligent information by doing that. Intelligence is not neutral, is not only neutral, in other words, or, or not only objective. Well, I think we have evidence of that in this country. This is why I go back to democracy and freedom might actually ride on how we how we decide to use psychedelics. And specifically what I'm talking about is, you know, if science were going to save us, we wouldn't have climate crises. And for people who say we don't have a climate crisis, I don't take you seriously. We have one. And if science were going to save us from that, it would have done so. But it couldn't because science can't cure greed. Science can't cure those seven sins. You know, it can't cure the things that are implicit in hierarchy, where you when you dominate something, you are engaging in those original sins. You, you must be bloated in some way. If if, if uh, soul saving alone, if religion alone were going to save us, it would have done so by now, and it hasn't. So your point is well wrought, and it's, in my opinion, that is the place, that bridge that you're talking about, where neither is wrong, but neither is right, and neither truly is neutral, unless you factor in, well, they could be neutral, but then neutral has its own agenda. So how does that impact democracy and freedom? Well, I'm thinking if we, if psychedelics actually show that people can be like yourself and calm and insightful and understanding of a bigger picture, they have an incredibly powerful, they could really, really disrupt the status quo. Not just in the mental health paradigm where people who are depressed will no longer be depressed, but in showing us that hierarchy is antithetical to freedom, antithetical to democracy, and ultimately antithetical to life, because we are destroying the planet by seeing things through this paradigm currently. I, I think that's interesting. And one of the things, so if you if you want to go down um, the 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 hierarchy path, this is it's it's interesting because. I had this, I had a number of different ayahuasca experiences that were really all about hierarchy. And um, I'll just try to summarize it briefly because I think um, this is really, really important. Um, in these experiences, like I was in the rainforest, you know, drinking ayahuasca, and the presence of hierarchies in nature are 
like front and center when you, cause you're obviously your, your mind is totally open and you're, you're, uh, and this is, I'm just saying you're because lots of people experience this. You can literally hear things killing and eating each other in, you know, in the, in the Amazon during these ceremonies all night long. And you can hear the way in which, um, the material nature is um, naturally devouring each other. And um, to me, there's also, so anyway, so the, the experience, the experience of hierarchy came through in the ceremony in the sense of, um, you know, there was, there was a part of processing the presence of hierarchy that was really terrifying. It was like, wow, everything's trying to dominate everything else. And this is just like this impulse that's in in nature. And of course, it brought me down this rabbit hole of religious mythology, you know, the Garden of Eden and just uh, falling away from a natural, you know, harmonious state of wholeness of some kind. I mean, mythically, of course, this human psyche has been grappling with this for so long. And, um, and in the, one of the things that came through was, I went through a period in a ceremony where I was um, I was ba basically thinking, well, how does this ever get taken apart or taken? How do you overcome this this hierarchy? And um, what I understood was that uh, th this this is a dimension of reality that is. E e and this is getting I mean, this is getting pretty esoteric here, but this is a dimension of reality that um, exists eternally, um, and it, it's it is um, co-present with with that space of hierarchy is a space of of peace, and it's more egalitarian and so forth. And um, as as soon as I engage with the desire to uh, topple or overcome hierarchy, I engage with it in a hierarchical manner. I, I attempt to dominate or suppress hierarchy. Um, I will participate in it. And so this ceremony felt like, a, you know, trying to, um, it was, it, you know, I saw these, all these images of war and peace and war and peace and trying to topple the bad guys so that the peace will reign in this kind of cycle. And this is actually where yoga um, came into my life because, there was something about this cycle of trying to dominate the dominators um, that I, I felt like, well, it's like a trap and you can't ever get out of it. And it was actually in those ceremonies that for the first times I was feeling so overwhelmed um, by what felt like a, a trap that you can't get out of that um, I, I was taking unconsciously, I was taking mudras and I was um, crossing my legs and sitting in meditation posture and starting to move my body in ways that were um, emblematic of, of uh, trying to go beyond um, the kind of embracing the, the totality and, and oneness or underlying unity of these uh, constructs. So it, it was something that moved me to, to say, Yes, there are hierarchies. Yes, they're they're problematic. But so, in my attempt to overcome them and and dominate them or topple them or whatever, um, I, I engage with them again. So there's this other path. And there's this other path, and this I mean it, this gets pretty far out. Like the the shamans, like you'll see some of the iconography of shamanic um, 
artwork in the Amazon. And they will, the, in, in these artworks, there are um, pictures of, from the visions, which many people have, of celestial dimensions where there's they're almost like there's this, this universe is so vast and there are places and dimensions of consciousness within which this particular struggle with hierarchy isn't like this lockbox that you can't get out of. There's other spaces and that technologies like yoga, Buddhism, all these sort of spiritual technologies are also a part of literally helping souls transmigrate, uh, getting something like a cosmic passport and helping them to move to different dimensions of experience. And that this planet in this particular realm is um, locked into this particular kind of dynamic. It's, it's like, um, it's, it's like a pattern. And, you know, and this is something that's like also like really widely talked about with people who use dimethyltryptamine, DMT, and like lots of other psychedelics too, that people have this sense that it's like a lockbox that you can't get out of and that you'll never really solve the problems inherent in material nature either. And, and that's why I think a lot of people take up yoga, Buddhism, things like that through these experiences. Wow. Well, okay. So two things. And, and at this point, you've pretty much nailed every question I had anyway, you've brought us to that point. So as I'm listening to you struggle with describing your struggle with hierarchy, it occurs to me, well, of course there's hierarchy. And even though now there is some research and some, you know, there, there's literature that questions the idea of social Darwinism, that maybe it's not actually what's been presented to us, that it's not, you know, dog eat dog and, and survival of the fittest. But clearly hierarchy exists. And, you know, that's such a visceral experience of it, not just having it once you've ingested the ayahuasca, but just hearing things eating one another in the jungle. And I've, I've heard other people talk about that. So hierarchy does exist. There is a sense of a food chain. And it's silly to say there isn't. And, you know, we must transcend that. That, that would just be idiocy. But what I am thinking as you're describing that is, okay, but that's, that's a reality. And maybe because we are not in the jungle eating something else, unless we want to go into the jungle and dominate, like build a rubber plant or something like that. Maybe the point is to actually evolve beyond that. And so that there is this um, duality and you have to see one in order to become something else. So you have to know about the hierarchy in order to evolve beyond it. That's precisely what my experiences had shown me was that, that this and I, I don't know if this is correct, so I'm trying to say this as modestly as possible, but my experience was basically like this, this either this time in history, like of course you have many traditions that believe that we're, we're, we move through ages and different um, experiences of consciousness are present in different ages, cycles of time or history. But um, this planet, um, this particular dimension of consciousness that's present in the human form, whatever it might be that this this is a gift to be able to perceive and experience things in this way. Um, it's a kind of training ground for the soul. It's a, it's a place to learn and, and grow. And, um, and more than anything, the idea was um, that to, to be humble, to be humbled by the fact that you, you know, I can't walk without killing microbes. I can't eat plants as a vegetarian and not be killing life. I can't. So this, this idea, and, and also like, just all the ways in which like any time that in, in one of the things that the experience taught me was that any time that we're 
even all of the most virtuous things that we want to do and see in the world, if their underlying function is to support a materialistic uh, life path that's about just pleasing the senses and that it, it has no, um, there's no sense of evolving as a spirit soul, that all of that virtue is actually still part of the exact same programming. Um, so it, it, not, not to be cynical, right? Like, cause I, I'm, I try to do good in the world too, but just to, to, to recognize that, um, the materialistic impulse is as present in trying to do good as it is in very overt actions of, of greed or destruction. Um, when, because the underlying desire is still for self-gratification. Um, when you say that it's a training ground and that there are many different corners of the universe. Um, I get back to my idea of freedom and democracy, that it should be sustained at all on this planet seems to me impossible if hierarchy is the domination, is the dominant paradigm. And it only seems to me that America has come closest to shedding that type of hierarchical um, imposition on the planet. Now, you also just said that there are times in humanity, you know, you're talking about eras. Okay, so this is gonna maybe sound a little crazy, but it is true and I'm noticing, simultaneous to this return to understanding the power of psychedelics, I mean, we've had fits and starts of trying to explore it in this country. Simultaneous to these studies, we now have pressure on the Pentagon to open up the files on um, unidentified uh, alien presences, like the UAPs. And we have the Black Lives Matter protests, and we have this, did they insurrect or was it Antifa? We have this, what's really happening at the top of our government? All of these things are simultaneous, this incredible disruption of the status quo and the potentials to see things far more as being vast than we've ever considered. So when you talk about these other spiritual helpers and you talk about them in your book, you know, what are you actually saying? That this yeah. is, is, is this, this is, and this is why I think psychedelics could be so disruptive is they're actually saying, this ain't all folks. Yeah, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. It's, and I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to be really careful because, um, you know, when people are just opening their minds to this or depending on where they're at, um, you know, people can turn off really quickly if you start sounding like a nut job. So, you know, I'm like trying to be really careful with what I say. But um, to me, the, the, um, the, the experience of this world and of what is here and this planet changes dramatically when consciousness changes and how you perceive and interact or relate with it. Um, um, so I think that's one thing, but also if I had to put it really simply, when I, when I moved to New York city, um, you know, out of grad school and I had basically grown up in the Midwest and not really seen the world so much. And um, I had these ayahuasca experiences. I finished grad school and then I moved to New York City. And New York City instantly within, you know, a month of being there in Manhattan and working in Manhattan <clears throat> made me realize like, this is a whole lot bigger and more complex and beautiful and terrifying than I thought it was like all at once. And if I had to 
put it simply, ayahuasca did that on like a universal or cosmic scale. Like it was like, there are way mm -hmm. more forms of life than people are aware of. And because, okay, just to be really blunt in these ceremonies. And again, this is in the religious like iconography of, of the shamans from South America. You can see it in their artwork. They'll talk about it. It's very common in ceremonies to have these experiences. You'll literally see and talk with entities. You'll talk with plants. You'll have spirit guides in the forms of animals taking you on adventures into traumatic memories from three years old. Like I had a a fisher, you know, the little animal, the fishers. So that was why I named my book Fishers of Men, because one of the animal spirits that kept coming up in my visions, it would run in front of my eyes and it would run down this, you know, kind of empty, dark trail and it would run and I would be like, where is it going? And it was almost like I was following it. And then it would disappear and a memory scape would take place. And I would be interacting with traumatic memories and coming to resolutions about them and then crying or you know, vomiting or something like that. And then boom, you know, after that sequence was done, the, the fissure would come back into my view. And it's like, that's a spirit for God's sake. What else could that be? Like, I, I, where does that come from? Um, and that's not all like there's, there's, you know, there are, yeah, there's just like, you know, people will have group visions. Like I remember distinctly, um, the, one of the very first times that we had a group vision was when everyone in the room was seeing pink river dolphins swimming through the mesa at the same time. Like, how is that happening if it's just in your own mind? No, we're all seeing the same thing. So there's, there's this, there's, there are dimensions of reality, consciousness, entities, beings, other planets um, that exist. And um, it, it's like New York City. It, it's as, it is as diverse, multilingual, you know, um, and 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 busy the the as New York City and it's here, it's not it's it's so it's it's already here. Some of those places don't exist just in physical distances apart from us that we need spaceships to travel to. Although that's part of it as well. But there's also this sense in which um, many beings are already here in a space that's ready to be accessed through a totally different kind of technology, which has to do with the the mind and spirit and you know, you say that it sounds crazy, but if you have these experiences, it's not crazy at all. So it's just hard to translate that for people who haven't had the experiences yet, especially without sounding like you're, you're trying to indoctrinate people with something, because I really don't know what to do with all of this. The thing that led me to yoga in particular was this idea that um, if you want like spiritual citizenship, you know, so to speak, if you, if you want to enter into, um, communion with other beings in in the highest vibrations of love peace harmony that exist in in the universe that exist in reality um that you have to there's a there's a transmutation of the spirit and soul that has to take place and there's many technologies that do it and you you can study them across the board techniques of ecstasy meditation that have existed in so many different cultures and i just felt like really compelled to take one up seriously because i I felt like any other attempt to solve either my personal problems or the problems of the world were really going to fall flat without something like that. I want to thank you for being so courageous because actually I, I agree with you that it's, um, you know, I'm in Washington, D.C. This is not a place where you have these conversations with people ever, unless perhaps you're part of this weird spiritual culty thing that's been happening. And you think that, you know, 
there's there's no trace of irony when you say that there are space lasers that are on your side trying to help people because you are a starseed. I'm sorry, but that's bonkers. And I'll tell you what my criteria for knowing that's bonkers is because there's no trace of kindness. Mm. And what I am determined to live out if I can't prove it. And I'm like you, I don't actually feel at the end of the day, I have to prove anything because your experience is, is proof enough. This person's experience is proof enough. I mean, we all have to live according to our own experience informed by taking in the information of others. But I keep looking for evidence as reassurance that kindness matters, that kindness ultimately is how you make the transition from the hierarchy to whatever else. Mm -hmm. And that kindness is, if not the same, it's part of that holograph, holographic experience of being well and healing others that your shamans have described to you. That, that being a, a healing presence can only happen if you are in touch with a sense of needing to be kind. Bhakti, one of the reasons I'm so drawn to Bhakti is because it is a multiverse of myth and philosophy and practical technology for, for spiritual life. And um, it comes from the Puranic literature tradition in India. Um, a lot of the teachings do, which is is really profound. And one of the things that we say is that like, and it is a very similar teachings actually from the Apostle Paul and from Jesus and, and other traditions too, um, Sufism, for example. But the idea that we, we um, there's a stage in spiritual life where, you know, you, you recognize like, okay, my ego is a problem, you know, or these particular impulses or vices that I have are a problem. Almost like, um, you know, an, an alcoholic might hit rock bottom and realize I'm not in control. There's something bigger than me. I have to surrender my ego. I have to surrender to a higher power. This, just putting oneself deliberately and intentionally into a position of helplessness. And um, that surrender is so vital to the ayahuasca experience too. There's a stage in which it's just like, I can't control this. I'm not in, I'm not in control of myself or my life. Or in, in, There's so much relief in experiencing that. And the humility that's built from that platform is in a sense, in the beginning, is hierarchical. You're saying, God is above me. God is bigger than me. Um, I'm limited in my power. I'm connected to God. I, I share some kind of similar divine essence, but but there's a there are powers and forces bigger than me. Gods, goddess, God, whatever you want to call it. And that's like an initial stage. And we talk about this in Bhakti too, that that's like, it's a very important initial stage where the role of hierarchy shifts from being egoic and worldly to being spiritual. And we need, a, just like the ancient view held that the, the gods had more power over human affairs and faith than, than we did. We have agency, we have choice, but we're still, um, there's in, more intelligent beings than us helping orchestrate our experiences and our journey in concert with our will. And above that is God and, and so forth. So this, this ideas of hierarchy spiritualized play this like initial role but then as bhakti evolves um which is a way of saying love of god or love in the heart for other beings and so forth um that we we move into a space where the hierarchy drops away entirely and 
the when the hierarchy drops away, there's nothing but spontaneous loving intimacy and connection. And so if you think about it like jazz, jazz is built off from scales. And so there's structure and there's there's um, a kind of, I don't want to call it hierarchy, but there's a kind of structure. And then eventually when you get into improvisation, it's as though the structure has dropped away. The structure is there, but it's dropped away and you're, the musician is just feeling it. And there's a spontaneity and a playfulness. And similarly in yoga, we go from practice and discipline, which a lot of which will involve a, a still a use of a hierarchy. God is above me. I'm below. I have to stay humble. I have to practice my sadhana. I have to get on my mat. I have to do my thing. I have to discipline my ego. I have to learn how to control my mind. And there's submission in that. They're submitting to something in that. But then as that, as that evolves and grows, um, the, uh, the, the feeling of there being differentiation of power drops away. And when that drops away, then we move into this fluid place which might be called Leela or Rasa, you know, the, the, the play of creation. And I really believe in ayahuasca ceremonies, what I saw was that the highly evolved species in the world are um, ones that if they use structure uh, or hierarchy or any kind of um, structure, it's for the sake of play. It's for the sake of art. It's for the sake mm -hmm. of imagination, creativity, that it's not like an anti-structure reality that, that is the highest reality. It's an intelligent, meaningful, loving use of those things. And mm. we, we have to be able to, um, in a sense, we have to say that's a higher way of being. And so that, that higher, there's still a sense in which uh, hierarchically, that's a higher and more creative and intelligent way of being. And we have to surrender our way of being. And so in that sense, this hierarchy is established, but then the more we practice and evolve to participating in this more playful, creative level of reality, the more that the sense of hierarchy as we were perceiving and are interacting with it vanishes. And, and like, that's at the, that's really at the heart of, of the philosophy of, of bhakti yoga, which is why I found it so compelling. Wow. And oh gosh. So in a sense, hierarchy becomes a tool. It's a, it's a, it's a means to a greater end. It's not the end and the means together. It's, it's a way to go beyond, but it's a tool. And, and I think you're re returning to the metaphor of jazz is, is so evocative. Um, and another thing that comes to mind then is, you know, these questions that have come out lately about leaders, we won't specific, specify one, but leaders who are narcissistic and is it clinical or is it a character flaw? Ultimately it's irrelevant because narcissism obviates any ability to truly be kind because you can't be kind and be controlling because kindness is open-ended. Yeah. It allows people to just be who they're going to be. I think, you know, what, what we say in, in yoga is uh, in, in bhakti in particular is that the, um, the natural, the, the place that you feel happiest is in the position of, of serving. And, but we don't, and there's a sense in which when you're learning to serve, you go through the feeling of, of being like a menial servant of, you know, and, but that is essentially that feeling of service being about submission is part of the purification because it's the, 
it's the program of greed. It's the program of narcissism that perceives service as submission to some authority because it's, it's placed itself as the center controller and authority. And so any, any sense that I could be, that serving would actually be more blissful is perceived as a threat. And the purification is of that process is very humbling. But then on the other side of it, what you realize is that, oh, in, in, well, the hermeticists, for example, in the ancient world, who were some of the earliest progenitors of astrology, for example, they said that the natural place of the soul was to find its place in the in the chorus of creation. So it's like, um, you know, in that sense, the the goal is to find where being yourself in service to the whole is the most blissful experience imaginable. But in order to get into that niche where your utter infinite uniqueness is the source of your everlasting bliss, you have to submit yourself to, um, you know, you, you, you can't, you have to let go of the program of, of trying to um, be more important or be more, and there's a submission in that, but the, the reward of that submission is your utter uniqueness. I, I would love to have you back and discuss the, um, the ways in which language prevents us from hearing the truth of what you just said, because so often language is, people say the exact same things you're talking about in order to keep people enslaved or. Yeah, they do. That's true. I don't deny that at all. And, and that's why I think the, the kindness test is really, um, it's really about how it feels and, and you can feel in my experience, like, when you speak with a good spiritual teacher, like I think of my guru or some of some of my um, shiksha gurus, instructing gurus, and different spiritual teachers that I've had in my life, and when they, when they, um, when they talk about this, and they, you can feel their hearts, you know, and you can feel that they're kind and that they're humble. Um, that's the difference. It's you know, and it's it's significant difference because um, you have to walk the talk, obviously. So that's, that's a whole conversation that I hope we have soon. In the meantime, last question for you is, um, do you feel generally optimistic about this moment in history um, as an American, as a, um, a person who engages with ayahuasca and as a citizen of, the, of planet Earth? My children help me to feel optimistic, like my children do, I'd say, because... Um, I see in I see in them, uh, my two-year-old and my five-year-old girls. I see in them tremendous creativity, good-heartedness, um, generosity. Mm -hmm. You know, I see like, and and that makes me believe that um, you know things can evolve and grow and change. And so you know, I hold that out. At the same time, I think um, my my optimism is rooted, I think, in the idea that. Um, that we live in an e eternal reality so that I, and I look at, you know, you or anyone I've, I've taken up the view now at this point in my life that um, we're all eternal and divine beings and that nothing is really at stake here, even though there is a lot at stake in a sense, but the eternal perspective helps me to realize that um, there's nothing, there's nothing so pressing that needs my optimism. Mm. <laughs> you know? And um, so I, I feel like um, 
if my, my optimism flows from, um, you know, a, if, it, if it comes naturally, when it comes, then it, it feels good. But I, I try to refrain from taking a view on, you know, an eternal divine reality that, that really doesn't need my view for it to be good. That is fantastic. That is so beautiful. That is truly, that is humble. Well, this was really fun. I really enjoyed talking with you about this. And I would love to talk more about um, all this kind of stuff. This is my nerd wheelhouse. <laughs> well, I I can't thank you enough, Achuta. This, this went in directions I didn't expect. And yet at the same time, it managed to answer all of my most pressing questions that I was hoping to be able to talk to you about. So thank you so much. You've been listening to Documental. I'm your host and producer, Whitney Fishburn, in Washington. For more podcasts like this one, visit documental.substack.com. That's documental, all one word, .substack.com.